Father in heaven, we do pray that you would soften our hearts this morning. And Your word has just been read to us. I have the privilege of opening it up, preaching it, Father. We pray that you might speak. Give us ears to hear. Unstop our deaf ears and open our blind eyes. That we might see something more of the beauty of Christ. And that we might follow him. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, there's a secular philosopher, uh, a professor of philosophy and religion based out of San Francisco State University, a man called Jacob Needleman. Um, and in 2007, he wrote a fascinating book. I have to say, I've not read it cover to cover. But the book is called, Why Can't We Be Good? And his big idea was this. He says, even though... Politicians and therapists and social theorists and everybody else are writing books about how people should live. He says there is just one thing that they are all forgetting. We can't do it. He says everybody basically knows how he or she ought to live, but nobody has got the strength to do it or the ability to do it, to do the things that we know we ought to do, and yet the books still keep being written and Orton. Needleman says, this is the biggest mystery and problem of the human race. Why are we writing all these books telling people how to live? They know they, can, they ought to do it, but they just can't. It's impossible. And that is our problem. And yet we encounter somebody in our passage this morning from Luke, at least in his mind, at least at the start of the story, who seems to think that he, he is good. He can do it. He's doing pretty well. Thank you very much. Do you have a look down, see how the encounter with Jesus begins at the beginning. Teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what's written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, and love your neighbor as yourself, which, which sounds fine. And he answers well, actually, until we remember the tone of the question. Because I jumped in at verse 26, verse 25, though, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to, to test Jesus. He's not friendly. He's not neutral. This isn't the warm curiosity that sometimes comes from the religious establishment in the Gospels, now and again. No, he's trying to test him. He's trying to expose Jesus. What do I have to do to get to heaven? What must I do to be saved? And to answer, well... Jesus could have answered in all kinds of ways, couldn't he? He could have taken the question apart. He'll do that at other times. He could have said to him, no, 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 no. Eternal life is a gift. But he doesn't do that. He asks him a question in return. And it's, it's striking in a sense, isn't it? He, he doesn't want to win the argument. He, he wants to win the man. He doesn't care so much about the argument. He cares more about him, I take it. He wants this young man, this expert in the law, who thought he was okay in a roundabout kind of a way to see for himself that he needs Jesus. He needs him. So let's jump in. And at the least we know that in God's perfect place, in a place of such goodness, that we would, if you like, we would need to be good. Hopefully that will appear behind me somewhere. Jesus could have answered in all kinds of ways, but like the supreme pastor, he, he answers with a question. 
And it's a question that will open up this guy in an extraordinary way. So the guy answers, he quotes from the scriptures and the law. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and your neighbor as yourself. It's a good answer. He's, he's splicing together Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, uh, Leviticus 19 verse 18. It's a summary of the whole law. Jesus will affirm that answer elsewhere. There is the, the vertical element, if you like, the first half of the Ten Commandments, how we love God, the horizontal element then, the second half, how we love our neighbor. And if you want to know God, you've got to love him with every single ounce of who you are, every last bit. And if you were a devout, God-fearing Jew and you knew your scriptures back to front and inside out, you would know this, you would know where it was from. There were debates at the time, but you would have a grasp of it in some sense. What must I do to get to heaven? What must I do to be saved? Well, the answer comes back to be with a God who is perfectly good. You must be good. But maybe you've already, if you were here last week, caught a whiff of the problem with this guy. Remember Matt from last week, 10 verse 21, that verse from Jesus. He praises the Father. Why does he praise the Father? 10 21. Because I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for that is what you were pleased to do. And who do we have in front of us this morning? We have a man who is wise and learned. And the wise and the learned think they've all got it sorted. And they've dotted the I's and they've crossed the T's. And the little children, they know they need help. They know they can't do it. And so Jesus says, you answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And at that point, you can almost see Jesus walking away. He's almost out of the room. But then the wise and the learned chucks in one last grenade. Why? Because he just wants some clarity. No, it's not because he wants to justify himself. It's as if he wants to save face. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I could be wrong, but I think he should know that answer already. This isn't curiosity, this is self-justification. He knew his scriptures well. He's just quoted from Leviticus 19. And a few verses later in Leviticus 19, he ought to be able to quote, or verse 34, the, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. He, he ought to know something of the answer as to who a neighbor is. Because as part of the same passage, God's given him the answer. But in response, Jesus tells him a story. And spoiler, it is a story to help us know that no one is good. Second point. C.S. Lewis said that, um, that stories allow us to steal past watchful dragons. That is, they are, they are the stealth bombers that come in under the surface, under the radar, to help truths get into hard hearts sneaking past our defenses, and so hitting home. And so Jesus, to get under the radar of this man, tells a story, like a stealth bomber. And it's likely that we know that story. It's likely that we, we're pretty familiar, or we think we are pretty familiar with that story. But it's the story of a guy traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, 
probably a 17-mile stretch, a well-known stretch. I'm told it was dramatically nicknamed the, the Road of Blood. Not sure what the equivalent might be in our day. Maybe the A34. <laughs> but it's a deserted road. It is secluded and dark and risky, and there are caves and there are corners. And it's the kind of place where you would try and pass by pretty quickly. It's the kind of place where there would be gangs of robbers who would hide and pounce. And so the inevitable happens. This man who's walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho, not only is he robbed, but he is stripped, he is humiliated, and he is left for dead. And maybe you know how it goes. Two religious people approach those part of the establishment. It's the pastor and it's the assistant pastor. And we think, hooray! Help at last for this poor man. Maybe he'll make it now. They're probably on their way back from Jerusalem. They just had an amazing time at church. Their hearts will be bursting full of joy of the Lord, full of temple worship. And they see him, and they pass by without helping. The priest and a Levite, they both knew their scriptures. And we don't know why they don't stop. Maybe it was too risky. Maybe they thought it was a trap. And you've got a guy in the gutter there, covered in blood. You think, well, if I go and help him, maybe there are going to be others who will come and jump on me too. And my wallet will be gone. Maybe they had meetings to get to, so they couldn't stop. Maybe they hadn't done their first aid badge in a while, and they weren't too sure about heavy lifting, and so, well, he looks pretty bad, and I'm not quite sure how I'm meant to help this guy, so... And you don't know where it's going to end up, do you? If I, if I stop to help, how much help is he going to need? He looks like he's in a pretty bad way. You don't want to bite off more than you can chew, do you? It's almost better not to start something that you can't finish. And anyway, it's not really their problem, is it? They have... I mean, he's bound to have family and friends. Really, that's, it's them. Really, it's their responsibility. And goodness, look at the time. Uh, anyway, uh, and so they walk by. And you can see why, can't you? And we can justify passing by in a thousand different ways. And so they don't stop. Of course, the problem is to love your neighbor as you love yourself, at least in part means that you would love your neighbor in the kind of way that you would want to be loved. And if that was you in the gutter, if that was you covered in blood, how would you want to be loved? How would you want to be treated? And then a Samaritan comes along. And as Jesus tells the story, I imagine there is a sharp intake of breath because if this guy in the gutter, wallet nicked, covered in blood, was in trouble before, he certainly would be in five minutes' time. Knowing them, the Samaritan, he's probably going to put the boot in as well, isn't he? Just to make sure he's finished off. A Samaritan, they were, they were the epitome of the other, that lot. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. We, we saw it a couple of weeks ago. We talked about it. They had a major history, and so ethnically, religiously, socially, relationally, they are enemies. You avoid them, they avoid you, and never the twain shall meet. And yet to love like God means to love not simply your own, because God loves all. He sends sun and rain on all. 
He pours down blessing on all. And so to love like him, to love like God, means you love all, not just those like you, but even your enemies. And we live in a polarized society, don't we? We, we will know something of that increasingly polarized. You just go onto Twitter or Facebook or you try not to, but sometimes. And, and so maybe we get something of the feel of this story, the polarization of Samaritans and Jews. And, and you tell someone you disagree with them and they think that you hate them. And yet think of the most cancelled group that you can think of. Or maybe the group that you have cancelled, the group that you don't like, the other end of the political spectrum, the value spectrum, the belief spectrum, the ideology spectrum, the people you try and avoid, the people maybe who you pass by on the other sides. And so it's shocking that the Samaritan stops he goes above and beyond the call of duty. And it is costly, isn't it? All, all love, all true love is sacrificial. But just put yourself in the shoes of this Samaritan. He, he dresses his, the wounds of this guy, maybe ripping his shirt to use it as a bandage to try and slow the blood and to clean him up. In the heat of the desert, he gives him his oil and wine as disinfectant. He lifts him up and he puts him on his own donkey, which means you can't fit two on a donkey. It means he's walking. So he's lost his clothes, he's lost his liquids, he's lost his donkey. And, and imagine that he, he arrives at the nearest premier inn, covered in the blood of a stranger, thirsty, dehydrated, calloused, having to walk through the desert. And then he pays for the room and then more than that, he opens the tab and says, I'll come back later and finish off what I need to be paying. I'll settle the account. It's costly, isn't it? But if that was you, isn't that the way that you would like to be treated? Isn't that what we would want if we were him? Can you feel something of what Jesus is doing at this point, the force of the story? I kind of wonder if the expert in the law is kicking himself. I should have kept my mouth shut. Why do the wise and the learned always like to get the last word of self-justification in? Just, just leave the room. Stop talking. Stop it. Stop. And maybe he can feel where it's going. The inevitable sting at the end of the tale. Jesus says, okay, so which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he can't even answer, really. He can't bring himself to say the words. He can't speak his name. He can't even say Samaritan. He replied, oh, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And so the question he asked was, who is my neighbor? And the question Jesus answered was, will you be a neighbor? Isn't it striking? The way that Jesus opens it up and points the finger on us. I think the problem with the expert in the law was that he had a wrong view of goodness, a wrong view of, of righteousness, if you like. And it's the difference between uh, ladder righteousness and space rocket righteousness. This is important. Bear with me. 
Many of us think that ladder righteousness is enough. I'm up the ladder, I'm higher than you, I'm better than you, I'm okay. And we look down on other people and we feel secure because we're a bit better than them. And he knew the answer, he knew the commandments. He thought he was good. Because he was up the ladder and you can look down on others when you're up the ladder. You'll always find someone below you. And yet Jesus opens our eyes and and shows us God's righteousness like a rocket. And there we are, halfway up the ladder, looking down at other people, and suddenly we look up and go, oh, oh, I've missed the point of this. And you look up at the rocket and you see where God is and what he is like and the kind of love that he has for people and, and how righteous he is and how good he is. And then we are halfway up a ladder near the floor. And Jesus has given this guy and given us a glimpse of how good God is, of what his love looks like, of what it means to love like him. Because he says, well, how are you going to be a neighbor? How are you going to love? You think you've kept those commandments? You think you've been good enough? Are you really good? And it's a haunting challenge, isn't it? Love, generosity, mercy, kindness like that is so far beyond us. And I think the penny drops for the expert in the law. I think it has dropped for Jacob Needleman, the guy from the start. And so what's the answer? What do we do with a passage like this? We've seen there's, in a sense, a need to be good. We've seen that no one is good. But that's not quite true, is it? It's not that no one is good. You see, if that kind of neighborly behavior is what is needed, that kind of love, generosity, mercy, kindness, goodness, even to enemies is what's needed, then to say that no one is good is not quite right, because where do we see that in action? Well, the answer is there's just just one. It's except one, isn't it? No one is good except one. And the story is meant to lead the expert in the law to respond, but I can't do that. And it is meant to make us respond, but we can't do that. That, I think, is largely why Jesus tells it. We're meant to feel a sense of discomfort. Where are you in the story? Maybe some of us associate with the kind of priest and the Levite and the sort of guilty pangs of that person we walk by, that we've not helped them, and maybe we should have. And maybe there is something in that. Some of us might think, well, actually, we're okay. I feel like a bit more like the Samaritan. Like I'm, I'm quite kind to people. I try to be kind to people who aren't like me. We give to charity. We engage in a kind of costly love. We are prepared to sacrifice. And maybe there's truth in that. Who are we in the story? I think at first the answer must be, in and of ourselves, we are bruised and broken and helpless at the side of the road. We are weak and we are feeble and we are stuck and we can't do a thing about it. And we are waiting for someone to come and just pick us up. And so what happens? The amazing, true, good Samaritan comes and rescues us. And he comes and shows us such undeserved kindness and generosity and love and mercy and patience and generosity and forgiveness. And and he does it again and again and again. 
Each and every morning, he comes and he picks us up as his, at such enormous cost to himself. It's beautiful, isn't it? Do you see who we are? We're covered in blood at the side of the road. And so what is our response to this account? Well, it must be to the cry out to the one who comes and loves us. He comes and loves us and shows us the help that we need. He picks us up and he tends our wounds and he provides. And he provides more than we can imagine at such extraordinary cost to himself. And I'd love to end there. But actually it's not where Jesus ends the account. Because then Jesus told him annoyingly, Go and do likewise. It's something that's always marked out the people of Jesus. Pretty much everyone cares for their own. You care for your tribe. You care for your community. You care for your people, largely. And yet down the centuries, what marks out believers in the Lord Jesus is that we care for those who are not our tribe, our community, our own. We care for the other. We show generosity and kindness and goodness and love. Just an example, late third, early fourth century, probably before most of our time. But we're in the city of Caesarea. Famine and war has already hit. And so a plague hits in the early fourth century. The people are already weakened. Everyone flees the city into the countryside. And it's not everyone, though, because some people stay behind. And it's the Christians. And it's the Christians who remain in the city. And so Eusebius, the bishop of the city, church historian as well, he writes that during the plague, all day long, some of the Christians tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. That's what sets us apart. Go and do likewise. Morgan Road, I'm concerned that we, that Christians in the West, have lost some of that. Maybe we are so self-absorbed and so caught up in our own little things, or big things, but there's kind of an introspection, a self-absorption. Or maybe it's just that we are so easily polarized in our culture. And so it's too risky. It's too costly. It's not my problem. And, and the excuses pile up. And so they trump the call to go and do likewise. And so too easily we feel like the priest and the Levite, perhaps because we are. And so my prayer for us for you and for me this week and beyond, is that we might know that mercy from him. We might know that we are bloody and in the gutter and needing his help. And to know in our weakness and our brokenness, the, the amazing, true, good Samaritan, the Lord Jesus, comes and tends to our wounds and our hurt and our brokenness. And so we receive from him and yet then that he will open our eyes and that we might love people this week and beyond. 
people who aren't like us, not from our tribe, our community, our people, but they'd just be very different. And so we will receive and then we will give. And so just as the, um, the Good Samaritan doesn't kind of go looking for help or looking for someone, I take it, but the Lord just sort of opens people on his path, just comes across him, so that the Lord might give us eyes to see this week opportunities. To have an extraordinary privilege to, to follow him and to show what he is like, to, to love those whom the Lord puts on our radar. To go and do likewise. And so that we might be a church increasingly that, that knows his mercy and then that shows his mercy. And that the Lord would give us very easy and very obvious opportunities for that this week and beyond. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do confess to you our need of the Lord Jesus. We see ourselves as, we know that we are sinful and suffering, broken and bruised. We are weak, we are unable. We are carrying all kinds of burdens. And so we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he comes as the, the one who comes and picks us up. And an extraordinary cost to himself brings us all that we need. Lord, humble us that we might look to him. Humble us that we might do that each day, maybe even for the first time today, but that we would be those who know and acknowledge our need of him and continue to look to him for that. But Lord, we're sorry. We're sorry for the times when we pile up the excuses. We're sorry for the times when our, our definition of love is too small. Or those who, who we ought to love, the list is too tight. And so give us opportunities this week, we pray. Or indeed, give us the kind of heart that wants to look for those opportunities. Might we increasingly be a church that knows the reality of your mercy? But then those who are prepared to show that mercy to others. Change us, we pray. We can't do this on our own. Be at work in us by your Spirit. Amen.